be talking about Teddy, so the explicit label is yeah. He's a uh, he was a prodigious uh, user of the of the dark arts of language. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, a man who invents the phrase syphilitic Jesus is, yeah, <laughs> that's putting effort into being vulgar and obscene in a way that I mean, very few ballplayers in general do when you think about it. That, uh, and, and Ted, I mean, when you think about the many different backgrounds that, that combine into that between being a baseball player, hanging out in locker rooms, also a man who served two duties in the Marines and an outdoorsman and fisherman who spent five or six decades in the latter part of his life hanging out with, out, with other outdoorsmen and fishermen. Well, let's all, hold, and, hold on. Let's, let's, you're the greatest hitter of all time. Absolutely. You're, you're possibly the greatest sports fisherman of all time. Yes. Right? He's in, he's in the Hall of Fame for both freshwater and saltwater. <laughs> didn't know those even existed. I didn't know uh, they were right. two separate and, ones to begin with. And John Glenn calls him the greatest wingman of all time. Mm-hmm. So here's a guy that can truly do anything. Yes. Whether it's now they're, they're all individual activities, right? Hitting is, is not a team sport. No. It sort of is right in the like, Hey, what did he, what's he throwing? What's he, you know, where, what was that pitch? That one that you just uh, struck out and where was that pitch? There's that. But it's still you against the pitcher. Yeah. The beauty of baseball is it's a team sport of individual one-on-one competitions, which means that ultimately the team's result matters, but you can determine exactly how each player contributed to that result more than any other sport. Right. Which is what what makes baseball so so statistically beautiful. Yes. And it's it's why... delve into it as much as you can because you can learn about so much and about the greatness of a player like Ted Williams and and figure out exactly how much greater he was than everybody else of his so time or greater. all time. So much greater. Like the thing about Teddy, it's the reason why there's never been a Ted Williams movie. Because who's going to play him? Nobody. Yeah. yeah. He was, you look at the, the, the old video of him, he's bigger than everybody around him. His hands are massive. Mm-hmm. His arms are long. His legs are long. And what, someone's going to mimic that swing? Not at Good all. Luck. Yeah. Good luck. It's, it's, and to that point, uh, there's a, a famous Bob Costas quote talking about Ted Williams that he was the only one, that he, only person he's ever seen who could swagger while walking into a room with a walker. That is like the perfect encapsulation of who he was, but also who he was, you know, at 20, because he was always the same guy who, no matter what who you were, uh, or how much you knew about baseball or about fishing or about World War II or Korea, even if you knew nothing at all, and people have said this, that when he stepped into a room. You knew that is somebody important. That is somebody I want to listen to and I want to learn about. And how many players in any sport have that quality to transcend like that? Well, growing growing up in Boston with my dad, growing up in Boston. So my dad's born in 36. So he's, yes, so he's raised into Teddy Williams. And in in the 70s and 80s when I was growing up, 
you know, the, we were the Red Sox were still mired in that, like, we had, you know, oh, we had 86, we had 75, we had 67, we had 46, and bupkis. Everything else, awful. So we had your guys. That's all we could lean back on was, like, well, we had Teddy. Right. Teddy who got oh. robbed, of, robbed of his back-to-back MVPs by the worst human being on the planet, Joe DiMaggio. <laughs> yes. Joe DiMaggio, who the media loved and got uh, got into a wonderful song because his name rhymes with go. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and everyone loved Mr. Coffee. And this guy's the best. And the press fucking hates Teddy Ball. Oh, he won't tip his cap. Who does this guy think he is? And they, you know, oh, he wasn't there when his son was born. All that fucking... Oh, when his kid was born, all that shit they piled on him. And it's like you go behind the scenes and he's the nicest fucking guy in the world. He's doing spending nights at the uh, at hospitals in Boston Being a doing farmer. work for the Jimmy Fund. Uh, uh, threatening reporters where if they, so, if they so help me God, you you print this, I'm never coming back here again. Yeah. He Which- gave, he like he gave us his phone number to the doctors. Like, hey, call me if anyone needs me. And the thing he would, you know, he was he was always helping other players. He was, you know, and then you add the fact that he's a fucking ridiculously good fighter pilot <laughs> and a uh, and a ridiculously good fisherman. And it's like like he's the true Renaissance. Okay, you're gonna and and some Yankees assholes. Well, well he's a bad father. He can't do everything. Yeah. <laughs> and he, yeah. And he didn't mean he didn't mean to be a bad father. And right? he realized at the end of his life that he had been a neglectful and absent father. And the latter latter decade, uh, he really tried. Oh yeah. To, he, he, to John Henry yeah. and Claude tried to get I to mean, know he, them. He gave he gave he gave John Henry he gave John Henry full run of the Ted Williams Inc. And it was it was really sad for for Boston people to see, because it was obvious that, like, he was just doing whatever he could to make money off the old man's name. But also, it was like, who gives a shit? Make as much money as you can off of your old man's name. Who fucking cares? Yeah. If, if Teddy's good with it, great. And there's, there's a really good story in, uh, I think it's Claudia Williams' book, Ted Williams, My Father, that came out about maybe five years ago where she mentioned that, you know, one of the things that John Henry oversaw was the autograph business and selling Ted Williams memorabilia autographed on everything. And what Ted liked to do every so often as he was signing, you know, 200, 300 photos of himself in his prime at a time is every so often when John Henry left the room, he would make one insignia uh, in the midst of autographing. He'd, He'd sign one photo to John Henry. You have no idea how proud I am that you're my son, your old dad. And just kind of leave it then among the pile for him to find later. And you know, it's it's hard to find heartwarming Ted Williams' father stories, but that one counts to me a little bit. I think. I, you know, you you, you don't hear any Ted Williams was a racist stories. No, you don't I, hear for for as shitty of a husband he was. I I never heard any reports of him getting physical. No. I just think his big. I just think he neglected. Yes. Just, just yeah. as he. I mean, right. He had no home life to speak of whatsoever. Mm-hmm. And you know, back in those days, that's that's what happened. 
Mm-hmm. I think he can be forgiven. I think he can be forgiven for that. Uh, and he's his lifetime on base percent just four eighty two. Four eighty two. Yes, it's he, he almost half the time in his entire career. Almost half the time. That's that is off the charts, mind blowing, yeah. insane. And uh, before we go any further, I think we should actually officially start the podcast here just uh, to get the proper out of the way, uh, since we're almost nine minutes into episode number nine of the Three Strikes You're Out podcast, part of the Outsports Podcast Network. This is episode number nine, a sacred number in baseball history, the Ted Williams episode. And as you could tell from discussion, this is actually going to be pretty much a Ted Williams episode because he is one of my two favorite players of all time, my favorite baseball legend of all time. My name is Ken Schultz. I am an outsports contributing writer, also contribute to Baseball Prospectus and Cubs Den, also occasional stand-up comedian and sayer of the funny things. The other voice you have been hearing for the past time, nine minutes, extolling the virtues of old Teddy Ballgame, the greatest goddamn hitter who ever lived, is one of my old comedy friends from New York City, Ron Krasnow, who can be found Hi, on Twitter. everybody. Uh, Twitter at Brooklyn Ron, which, as we know, Brooklyn is my favorite borough of Boston. And, <laughs> uh, Ron, yeah, it, it's it, you're you're not making it subtle. Is uh, a Red Sox, Boston sports super fan, diehard, whatever you want to attach yeah. to. It. Yeah, I'm a born and raised, born and bred masshole mm-hmm. without the accent, uh, but have been living in Brooklyn since 2006. And really just making everyone around me miserable. It's really great. Which is your job as a mass hole, I think. I have, a, I have a Yankee fan living across the street. And every playoffs, it's so great when the Yankee pennant gets put out in front of his house. And then he puts it out in broad daylight every year. Mm-hmm. And then he takes, he takes it down in the middle yes. of the night, in the <laughs> middle of darkness, when no one can see him. And every year I try to, I try to catch him when he comes down. Uh-huh. Do you, do you try to, uh, on the night when the Yankees officially get eliminated, like they did uh, with the Jose Altuve walk-off this year, do you try to stay up as long as possible, just kind of peeking yeah, out every like night? That's what, and that's when I'll do the dog walk. Yeah. And, hey, what you and, doing? Uh, what you exactly. doing? Exactly. Uh, I didn't see what happened. <laughs> that's, uh, yeah, Although that's, now with, like, with, with, with Houston, I can't even, like, that's... <laughs> Although, if anyone's going to get screwed by a cheater, I'm really happy it's the Yankees. Yeah, I, I, I was talking to Chris Calagero, uh, one of our best Yankee fan friends, a couple weeks ago for the podcast. Hey, 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 hey. And we presented the idea that, yeah, the, the Yankees actually are kind of vindicated is not the right word. But when they beat Houston again in the playoffs, it's going to be tough for America to pick a side, honestly, because Houston is. I yeah. Mean, to use a metaphor you're familiar with, Houston is essentially the New England Patriots of baseball at this point. Uh, and I, I think, have no argument. Yeah, yeah. And I think most of America kind of uh, feels that way. And, and it's, it's, it'll, uh, just as a neutral observer, I'm, I'm going to be curious to watch all that fun. But, uh, but yeah, so um, we're going to be spending the majority of this episode talking about uh, Teddy Ballgame. Uh, do you want to hit some current Red Sox topics off the top to kind of just get that shit out of the way? Uh, or yeah, just... I mean, there's the only, there's the only, the, the only topic of the offseason for us is, is, is the big one. And I just, I can't face it. Neither. Yeah. As a Cub fan, you know, I, I, I just, Mookie is, is 
the first five-tool player that's come up from the farm system for the Red Sox in my lifetime. Um, he might be the best all-around player the Red Sox have ever developed. I mean, he's, he's an amazing right fielder. He's an amazing hitter. He's an amazing base runner. He he truly does he does everything right. He seems to be a delightful man. Uh, him and Jackie on that between center field and right, that they cover two thirds of the of the outfield. But like the real two thirds. Yeah. Like an insane like and truly two thirds of the outfield. And in Fenway, that is a gigantic two-thirds. I mean, that that's uh, really almost closer to three quarters in, in that ballpark. Yeah, that, that right, because that right field is insanity. Yeah, and it gets so it gets so deep in the center. So it, yeah, it's the the stuff he does. The on both in 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 both sides of the game. To me, it's worth the bank. And I don't. I don't. Listen, I'm I've never been a billionaire. I don't I'm not on track to be. I'm not sure if John Henry is, but I'm sure he's a super millionaire. So like that they know that he's made money, good for him. I don't I don't know what they're doing. I don't understand how you don't back the truck up and say, We give you my trout money and off we go. Yeah, if not for bets, then who, honestly? Right. Right, right. And what do you it, it, he's, in, it, he's young. Son, he's healthy. Yeah, he's he's twenty. Is he twenty seven at this point? Is that that? I, uh, I think so. Twenty seven, twenty eight. Twenty seven. So we are at prime baseball age, and mm-hmm. his prime best years, he puts up <laughs> war numbers. And one of the very few in Red Sox history certainly puts up war numbers that are comparable to Teddy's best war. Yeah, Carl Yastrzemski in sixty seven. I mean, those are not just gold standard for the Red Sox. Those are gold standard for baseball, period. And Mookie is in that realm. And even last yeah, his, year. His season, his, his, uh, his season two years ago was just insane. Yeah. His 18th season was amazing. Think about how good you have to be to win in this era, to win an MVP over Mike Trout and have most of yeah. baseball go, yeah, actually, I can see that. that, that that's okay. And then even last year, a, a year in a quote-unquote down year, was a 6.8 war year, reaching base at a 391 clip. 29 home runs, 135 weighted runs created, plus 12.6 ultimate zone rating on defense in a down year. One of the very best players in the game. Again, if not him, then who? Is there a a better defensive right fielder in the game? uh, Maybe prime Jason Hayward, maybe, I, I would throw out there. And Jason Hayward is kind of, now on the other side of prime, so at, at this point, at this point I, I'd be, probably not. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it's I'm, it's it's insane to me. I mean, I'm really happy they kept JD, but it's like if you're going to keep JD, of course, Mookie should still be the priority. Mookie's the yeah. that's the engine, right? That that you is want, who that's you what you build. You build your team around, and and not just for next year. That is a guy you build your team around yeah. for. Five years to a decade after this. And you get him, and then you do it to Devers, and then it's like, look at this. We have your infield foundation, you have your outfield foundation. Right, and that lineup that scares the hell out of everybody for the better part yeah. of a decade, which is 
how the Red Sox, especially over the past 20 years, have won repeatedly, is you have that nonstop crush of, oh my God, here comes Pedroia, followed by Ortiz, followed by Ramirez, followed by Euclid. And now the, the modern version of that would be Devers with Betts, with Benintendi and guys like that, and with J.D. Martinez. Martinez I mean, yeah. Something you don't see around the game at all, especially in an era with uh, the high strikeouts that, that we have today. And, uh, and so I'm going to throw this out at you because I, I, I did an episode last week on the Chris Bryant situation in Chicago. And I'm going to throw pretty much the same points that I did last week, uh, that this week, only kind of emphasize because Mookie Betts is a step above Chris Bryant at this point. And there are three points that are that are important with the offseason situation with him. One, there is no such thing as a good return in any trade for Mookie Betts. Not at all. Two, trading a player of his caliber with a year remaining is not the smart move, despite the fact that so many fans have been conditioned to think that, well, you have to do that if you go a year before his free agent year. And three, and especially this applies very much to John Henry and the Red Sox, you are allowed to sign your own player when they hit free agency. It does occasionally happen. Ask Steven Strasburg. And we've been conditioned by baseball owners to accept that if it's a year or even two years now before a player hits free agency, well, we got to start thinking about how we can unload him and what we can get for him. And not for a guy like Betts, not for a guy like Bryant. That's, that's is, that, is, is, that the, is that the owners or is that a combination of owners and Scott Boris? Because I think, I think that the agents have also played a role in, in how they've conditioned the owners to they're greasing the skids as opposed to that six months before leading up to free agency. Now it's 18 months. Mm-hmm. You know, so they're, everyone's, everyone's getting ready for free agency way before it's necessary. Yeah, and, and a guy like Boris that gets people excited about his clients much more in yeah. advance when they have agency, and it's obviously worked for him in the offseason. He's, he's doing his job, right? An agent's yeah. job is to get as much money as possible for his client. But with the other thing with Mookie and the Red Sox, we all know of Boston's history. Yeah. Yep. And to have a homegrown African-American baseball player in an era where there are not a lot of black American baseball players in the major leagues. And to let that guy walk or trade away on a, on a, for a shitty return, heartbreaking. It would be a heartbreaking one. Seems like that would be a very Tom Yawkey-esque move if you were a modern-day owner, doesn't it? Yeah, it's, it, just, it would reek of it. It would yeah. reek of it. Yeah, and then, yeah... And the Red Sox know about that history, too. And, and it seems like that they, they try to... They have to. They, they scrub you. There's no more Yankee way. You right. Know, they, Which they is good. They're truly... Yes. Yes. Bringing in Willie Mays for a fake tryout is not <laughs> a, 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 a quality history. Uh, Willie Mays. Uh, and, uh, yeah. Yeah, we'll get into that, uh, I think, later on when we go back back in time with Ted. Uh, but, yeah, and, and Sox ownership, when there are incidents like, uh, was it the Adam Jones one from a couple years ago, where the, the lowlifes from Southie or whatever that, that throw N-bombs at him from the outfield, that the Red Sox really try to be proactive in, in 
trying to get those people out of their fan base. And, and it would be, as you say, a real shame when they have an opportunity to make, yeah, yeah. When you have an opportunity to make the best African-American player in the game be the face of your franchise, it, it means something for that particular franchise to take that opportunity. And it, it's, yeah, it's, it's kind of crushing. Yeah, it bothers me. Yeah, let me ask you this as well as uh, a Sox fan, especially one who's paid super close attention over the past 20 years. Do you think that uh, for, I, I assume Red Sox fans and Red Sox Twitter probably has a number of people that Cubs Twitter do that try to make the argument that trading him in advance would be kind of a smart strategic move. And do you think that they've been conditioned by the Nomar Garcia par trade from so many years ago and how well that ended up working out to think that, Hey, you know, that management might know what it's doing when it trades one of our superstar players away. Do you think that that, that has any effect? No, no, no. Cause Nomar was already on the back slot on the back end. The fans had already turned on him. Uh, you know, he, he was what a year and a half after his wrist injury. Right. And you know, the, the, the he was treated like garbage, mm. and and for whatever reason there was no, there was no joy in Mudville with mm. Nomar. <laughs> so when they traded him, there wasn't that uproar because he wasn't beloved. This wasn't 1999 Nomar, right? If you trade 2001 Nomar. Forget about it. Yeah, that's understandable. You know, you're trading away the superstar and not getting back a superstar. It's awful. It's such bad. It's such bad business. Mm -hmm. It's bad baseball. Everything about it's bad. It's just bad. Don't John Henry. No, (laughs) no. No biscuit. Don't trade my Mookie. Yes. Yes. Oh, I mean, he, there just hasn't been a Red Sox come around in a long, long time that I latched on to from day one and said, ooh, look at this guy. Yeah. You, and you it's just oh, from like, oh, that, oh, my God, this guy does things that nobody else in this yeah. game does. Yeah, he was such the real deal from yeah. the jump, and it was just like he was—he's such a delight, and he's clutch, and he's fearless, and he's fun, and he's they the do the fun outfield jump. His yeah. cannon! Oh, he's got a cannon! Yeah, and yeah. leaping occasionally. Yeah, yeah. I mean, everything you can do good well at baseball, he does uh, yeah. at the top level. Uh, kind of on the subject of uh, Sox ownership, and this is kind of relating to that, it seems like over the past decade, it's really hard to kind of get a, a consistent sense of what their approach is to team craft and to building a team. Because it seems like from offseason to offseason, it almost switches from sign all the players, get get all the guys to nope, nope, we're not signing anybody. Nope, nope, not, we're not doing a thing. And this, this goes back to, like, the signings of Adrian Gonzalez and Carl Crawford, where uh, they tried to, you know, goose the ratings in Nesson uh, by bringing in the biggest name. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 don't, I don't know them. Yeah. Uh, that, listen, listen. That trade 
was amazing. Yes. Getting yeah. rid of them with Beckett. That was, uh, I mean, we were sad. We were sunk mm-hmm. forever. Right. If, if that trade doesn't go down. Yeah, that's almost from a bygone era where you could find ownerships willing to take on a Carl Crawford contract because they just desperately wanted to get Adrian Gonzalez onto their team. And to be fair, he was really good with the Dodgers, so it ended up working out okay for them. Um, but now, because so many teams are concerned with keeping under that mythical luxury tax threshold, you just and, and it's a big problem for the Cubs right now that they really want somebody to take some of their long-term commitments. I'm sure they would love to find someone to take a Jason Hayward off their hands, for example. But there just aren't teams that do that anymore. And, and it's, so, also, it's also for teams like the Cubs or the Red Sox or the Yankees or the Dodgers to, to, to cry luxury tax yeah. woes. It's yeah. farce. Yeah. Those it teams is. make so much money. And how about... Sign players better. I mean, listen, with, with what you said, when 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 the Red Sox had the the Theo system for so long, and then you 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 get rid of him and bring in Dombrowski, who is all he does is take the best things out of your farm system, and 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 trade for big. That's what he does. That's what he's always done. So that it shouldn't have been a surprise that that's what he was going to do. They brought him in specifically for that purpose. And and to be fair, it worked. 108 wins later. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah I mean, that 18 was the most fun baseball scene of my life. I would hope so. You know, I mean, well, because 04 wasn't fun. It was a necessity. Right? Yep. That was... I understand that completely as, as a man who was coughing himself to sleep every night in October of 2016. Yes, I made my <laughs> yeah. ill over the greatest Cubs team of my life. So, yeah, oh. I, I go on there. Uh, but, yeah, so they go from Gonzalez and Crawford to two years later after they win the 2013 World Series, signing nothing but role players, committing to the idea of no contracts longer than four years, especially for starting pitchers, which causes them to lose John Lester, which, thank you very much, my favorite Red Sox move of all time. And in response to that, they decide, oh, shit, we got to sign everybody again, which is when they bring in Hanley Ramirez and Pablo Sandoval. And that doesn't work. So now we go young, build around Betts, Bradley, Bogarts, and they get to the playoffs, but they can't push it over. That's when they bring in Dombrowski, and he says, okay, here's your J.D. Martinez. They win again, and now it's back to austerity. And so what well, does Boston have ownership like that? You know, I think also, you know, when you had Poppy in there, so you had a guy who is able to carry your team for weeks at a time and allows you the flexibility to build, really build a team. And I think that the, I think that the, I think the Red Sox are always trying to build a pitching first team. They always are trying to get three aces. That seems to be their goal. Mm-hmm. They it's, just, it's just hard to do. Yeah, they, they know offensively they're always going to be at least good for the most part every year because of you have good hitters who play in that park that that enhances their effects. Yeah. So I understand, yeah, why you would want because they figured out, especially over the past 20 years, when you have the the Schilling Pedro Delo model 
leading into, you know, the Beckett, Dice K, the one year he was good model into the, the yeah. even the most current group of Chris Sale, followed by David Price uh, and, and guys right, like for that. As, right, because for as awful as Price has been, his 18 was magical. Yes, especially in the postseason. Yeah, his postseason was insane. The, the stuff that he did coming out of the bullpen, which none of us expected, you know, helped win the series. Mm-hmm. Uh, so how do you feel about, uh, the Red Sox bringing in, uh, one of the execs from the Devil Rays, uh, Chaim Bloom, I believe his name is, which I, I think saying that in a Boston accent counts as a hate crime. Uh, Chaim Bloom, sir. Yeah. Uh, here's the thing. After 18, I really like gave myself a, a 10 year pass. As you should. I mean, four championships in 14 years, that, yeah. Because four was, right, four is a lot. Three yeah. was nice. Yep. Like three was, okay, this is what I'm getting. I'm getting these three, that's great. So 18 was such a surprise. It came out of nowhere. I'm so much more relaxed about the Sox. Amazing. I, I, when they don't make it to the playoffs, when they're not in, you know what that means? That means three to four weeks of no stress in my life. <laughs> um, and, and, and that, you and that nausea. Like your favorite team like that? I never thought I'd be like this. Yeah. I mean, you you know as well as I do what it's like to grow up and realize just how much you die every year waiting and thinking, is this ever going to happen? And, and to be in the bonus round to that extent now, is, how, what do you think it's, when you look back like that? I mean, you combine you combine that with the Patriots. Oh Jesus! Where yeah. where where the you com, the Red Sox my my Red Sox Patriots childhood was devastating. You know, uh, going to old Sullivan Stadium to watch <laughs> to, to watch Tony Easton was was awful. Was Sullivan Stadium named for literally every other guy in Boston? <laughs> yeah, I mean that Bears Super Bowl was one of That's the worst my friend. Friend. Awful. We scored first, though. Yes. Come on. Right, you did. Sorry, That's right, did, my friend. And uh, what we is it? Forty-six to... points later. Hey, we scored first and we scored last. I think <laughs> that means we won. <laughs> I uh, to this day I can quote you, and I'm sure you don't want to hear it. At least the first two thirds of the Super Bowl shuffle from memory. So. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, listen, did Walter Payton score in the Super Bowl? You guys did him dirty. Which was did yeah, just dumbest. Dirty. Yeah, Walter Payton can't score, but the first can. Which okay, that that's an interest. That's a choice, I guess. It was uh, a choice. Yeah. So moving on now to the the reason I brought you on here, uh, and we've discussed uh, the, it. A kid. Let's talk yeah. about the kid. Teddy ball game. The thumper, thumping Theodore. Uh, so I'll start this by asking, and and you kind of. Uh, touched on a little bit at the start. Your dad was born in 36, so he got to see Ted in his yes. prime, right? And uh, how, yeah, did he? I, I assume he told you had to tell you stories of what it was like growing up as a Red Sox fan and seeing this supernova for 20 well, he years. Saw him, he, he, I think you know. So let's say so probably like 46, 47. My dad's probably like. At Fenway, twenty to thirty times a year, and he's also playing baseball like a madman. My dad played all through high school. Was a 
played in college, played fast pitch softball, like in, in leagues in Boston. Awesome. Uh, and so Teddy, I mean, the, my dad is also a lefty. Mm. Uh, so the the on base the the OPS that Ted really pioneered. He didn't say it. He didn't talk about it. But that's what his whole hitting mindset was, right? He wasn't going to go hit home runs. I want to hit line drives. Yeah, the foundation. I, get a good ball to hit. Get a good ball to hit. Every single hitter. What is the most important thing of hitting? Get a good ball to hit. Yeah, and then go where and, and hit it where it is. Yep. Don't try to hit it where it's not. Think of how many decks <laughs> in it. How far ahead he was uh, in, in terms of comparison to the rest of baseball at that point. Just look at the number of walks. Yeah. You look at like in uh, in forty one. I think it was forty one. We had like six hundred something plate appearances. But he walked one hundred and sixty times. Mm-hmm. One hundred forty times. Yeah. So it's like yeah. Yeah, okay. That's how you hit 406, you yeah. know? Yeah. yeah. He, actually, he, ton. he actually cost himself at least one or two batting titles later in his career in the mid-50s because he walked so often. Because back then, baseball only counted times at, or at bats, official at bats, in terms of how many uh, minimum number you needed to qualify. So I know in 54 and maybe in 55 as well, he actually led the league in batting average. But because he walked so much, he didn't have the official number of bats he needed to be the official batting leader. So in reality, he should have been batting champion seven or eight times as opposed to the six that he was, which is also fun. Every Ted Williams stat, you realize when you dig deeper, he was actually better than yeah. the stat you yeah. know about. Which just, again, already taking the best hitter of all time and, and bringing him, leveling him up one or two times is, is fascinating. But I, I interrupted about your, your dad's grown up uh, in 46 <laughs> He never, never, I don't know. He had one year with the OPS under a thousand. Yeah. And that was in like 58. Yeah. He hurt his <laughs> neck in 59. And that was the one 59, year. 59. Yeah. 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 The year he was hurt. <laughs> right. Yeah. And then after that, uh, he walked into Yaki's office in the off season and said, I was not good enough this year. Give me the biggest possible pay cut you can give me because I did not earn it. And then and he went like out. $35,000 pay cut. Yeah. And <laughs> then he went out, uh, I think. 316 in 1960 or something like that and hit the home run in his last time at bat and made John Updike orgasm on a page for <laughs> Yorker, which was delightful. Uh, so how did you first become aware as, as a Red Sox fan growing up, as you said, in the 70s, I, I, this, I, I, I can't even, I, 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 when did I learn the sky was blue? I, <laughs> I don't, you know, it just, it was uh-huh. always, he was Ted Williams, Red Sox, baseball. That was just, it was, Always on, either on the TV, on the radio, uh, or we were playing baseball. It was just, it was a a part of a part of New England life, mm. and certainly in my in my house, my dad was just he was one of those guys that you know not only loved listening and watching the Red Sox, but he also played softball as much. I mean, he's eighty. Three years old, he still plays softball. Jeez, that's amazing. My uh, my brother's daughters are 15 and 11, and they're just getting into softball. He gave the 15 year old the science of hitting, like a few yeah. weeks ago. Love it. And had to read it. And I mean, he it's it's pretty awesome. He's a uh, 
He's a he's a, a true baseball lover uh, uh, of every part of the game. That's awesome. And, and so, but so Ted Williams was like the natural, you know, uh, role model for him as far as hitting was concerned. Mm-hmm. And for and, right now too, as uh, and again, science of hitting. One of the things that's uh, the main points in there besides get a good ball to hit is Ted's idea. And this was incredibly revolutionary in baseball at the time that because the pitcher is pitching from an elevated mound and the ball is coming down at an angle, it makes sense to have a slight uppercut in your swing to meet that ball at the best possible angle, which, uh, as many people have pointed out and realized today, that's kind of the definition of launch angle. So it's yeah, not a new fad. Yeah. 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 Fucking guy invented physics. <laughs> <laughs> oh God. Yeah. Uh, I mean, right? There's the there's there's the legendary there's you know there's the legendary Teddy Ballgame stories too that like, you know, his eyesight was so good that he could call off uh, how many seams he hit. You know, he'd uh, pine tar up his bat, crack one seam, crack two seam. You pick up the ball and shit. I mean, it's he's a he he's a a, a true mythical man. Yeah, and. And like a, a real, like a real great, a real great American hero. Very, you yeah. know, flaws and all. A great, you know, you you weigh him his goods and evils, and his goods were so outweigh his evils. And yeah. then you look at that fucking racist bitch Joe DiMaggio, <laughs> wife beaten fucker that he was. Yeah. And and you look at the, that guy. He was miserable and yeah. alone his yeah. whole life and a miser and a scumbag. <laughs> that all yeah. he wanted was, you know, to be the famous Joe DiMaggio, but he wanted to be on a pedestal above everybody. And that meant that he could never get close to anybody. And Ted Williams, especially at the end of his life, what was he best known for was the friendship he built between himself and Bobby Dorr and Johnny Pesky and uh, Dom DiMaggio. The, the, the teammates, the statue that's out of, outside of Fenway now. And it, Ted, for all of his accomplishments, realized that the, the relationships he had among especially those core four guys was the most important thing at the very end of his life. And, and David Halberstam wrote a damn book about it. Um, my, my favorite, uh, to go back for a second, uh, talking about Ted and batting practice, my favorite Teddy batting practice story is uh, the one I think Jim Bouton told this in the Ball Four book that he wrote in the late 60s, that he was the first to reveal that one of Ted's habits as uh, as a player to kind of psych himself up before games would be to kind of strip either to his boxer or just completely naked in the locker room, stand before a mirror, start taking practice swings, look at himself, and just repeat the mantra, I am Ted fucking Williams, the greatest fucking hitter in the major fucking leagues. Who are we facing today? It's Jim fucking Bunning in that piece of shit slider. What does Teddy fucking ball game do? Here it comes, Jim fucking Bunning, and just crushed in his mind. <laughs> and yeah, that that is Ted Williams, just in a nutshell. And I just love hearing shit like that. That oh, there's the the story when he comes back from Korea, yeah. and, and he goes to Fenway. And they're like, why don't you, uh, why don't you take some batting practice? He's like, I don't, I don't want to. Like, ah, come on. 
and he takes like one swing, okay, two swings, oh, <laughs> and at one point it like launched like thirteen in a row out of the park. Yes, <laughs> it's legendary batting practice session. Yes, that that both uh, the Lee Montville and the Brent Bradley Jr. giant biographies, which are both great, both delve uh, devote a good section to this because, yeah, it, it was uh, it was like everybody in the ballpark realized, oh my God. He is back, and not, and not just back. He is announcing his presence with authority. And I think it was Bradley that talked about that in the middle of that home run barrage, like somebody noticed, took a close look, and his hands were bleeding as he was just hitting home run after home run after home run. And all he, could, all he would do, people would try to marvel, and he'd just say, throw the son of a bitch to get another, and put another one over the fence. And this is almost like mythological territory here. And this is also the batting practice session, the famous one where supposedly afterwards he went up to Joe Cronin and said, uh, something about that plate seems off. And Cronin was like, oh, yeah, sure, Ted, whatever. Uh, but to humor him, they called out some surveyor to kind of take a measurement of whatever angle home plate was. And it was off by like a fraction of a couple degrees off. <laughs> and again, that that nothing defines yeah. how much Ted obsessed over hitting like that. That 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 season in general. After uh, I was going to ask you this, uh, um, what is your favorite underrated Ted Williams season? Because we know about forty-one, and we'll get into that in a second. And the triple crowns and all that. Is there any that that stands off the page? That you go, oh my god, nobody talks about this, but this is amazing to me. No, that fifty-three. You, you mentioned that earlier. That yeah. 50, it's just that. 50. Um. Yeah, to step out of a war. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, so I, I I wrote a piece about this for Baseball Perspectives a couple of years ago because everybody, when they talk about that year, focuses on, and understandably so, the crash landing in Korea where his plane caught anti-aircraft fire, caught fire, and he had to steer it into the base essentially without landing gear and somehow survived. And yeah, he refused very, to parachute. He wouldn't. He wouldn't right. eject. Right, because he was six foot four, and he was worried that if he did, as he, as he phrased it, he'd take his kneecaps with him. Uh, and again, even even at his moment, a moment where his life was in crisis, he was thinking, "How am I going to hit if I hit the eject button?" So that that's a damn ball player right there. Yeah. So yeah, everybody. The biographies always focus on that, but kind of give short shrift to the baseball part of '53, and that to me is what's amazing because, again, at, at a time when his teammates were reporting to spring training, that's when Ted was getting shot down over Korea, which, first of all, goes to show that some people will do anything to avoid going to Florida. But <laughs> Ted uh, got back in uh, uh, August of that year, and it, and it wasn't just getting shot down in Korea, but he also caught pneumonia when he was in Korea. He also got the clap when he was there. Because that's what you do when you're Ted Williams and hey, hey, the other side hey, of the world. Hey. What? It's just some syphilis. It's just. <laughs> it's just, it's just if, if Bob we'll, Feller couldn't hold Teddy Ballgame down, a bit of the sif wasn't going to do it either. That's right. We'll, and, and so he only uh, began playing at the very end of July or, or early part of August. And. Uh, his last at-bat in 1952, before he left for Korea, was a home run, which I call rehearsing for John Updike. Uh, his first at-bat back uh, in 53 was a pop-out to first base. And this is my favorite part. Boston fans still applauded, which means it was an even greater miracle 
Red Sox fans clapping for somebody who made an out, which which to me is just, is just delightful. And then he, he waited till his second at bat to hit a 420 foot bomb off Mike Garcia, one of Cleveland's aces of that era. And then it was just on from that point. I, I, it, his first start was a couple days later. He went two for three with a double and a home run in five innings. Immediately launched into a 12-game hitting streak with six home runs, including back-to-backs off of Feller and Garcia. And his stats <laughs> for that year are like steroid Barry Bonds in 26 games, 26 starts, 37 games overall. Slash line, 407, 509, 901 slugging. And in 26 starts, 37 games, two wins above replacement. In Again, how does this happen? Other than he is a 901 slugging is a little ridiculous. Yeah, you think just 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 a tad. That's you're not supposed to be hitting your number in the slugging percentage like that. That that it, again the the baseball at with with again no batting practice at all in Korea. Certainly no no games in Korea. He just stepped in because this is what he knew how to do. This is what he was made to do. I bet you he was swinging the bat mentally. Every moment he was up on that plane, he's probably going through his swing in his head all day long. The only way you could stay sane in an environment like that, I'm sure, for him. I suppose. Yeah. Um, so let's uh, let me ask you: Do you have a favorite uh, Ted Williams record? Uh, any any? I mean, there there are so many, but any that stand out to you in particular? You yeah, it's, it's, the, it's the career 482. Yeah, it's, that's a great one. What, it's. What are, you, what are you supposed to do in baseball? Get on base. Yeah, when, when we realized as, as a stats community that on base is the single most important offensive statistic you can have, I mean, who do you go to as the number one uh, all-time on-base leader? By yeah. a wide margin, he pretty much has to define Ted as the greatest hitter of all time. It was years ago, before it was OPS, at least in my house, we called it slob. Nice. What was the acronym uh, slug, for? You know. Yeah, it was uh, slugging times on you know. Okay, nice. So it was, and uh, I, I think my dad—that's just what my dad called it. Hmm. So we've just been—we've been a slob household for <laughs> a very long time, and I think probably because of Boggs and his like his run eighty-five, eighty-six, eighty-seven—that got me really interested in the comparisons because he was also a big base on balls guy that the media was like, Oh, this guy's up there looking to just get on base. And it's like, yeah, you dummies. Yeah. He's a table setter. You're assholes. (laughs) What you're supposed to do as a baseball player is not make outs. Do you like outs Boston media? And that's, you know, so that's doubles. I am a big fan of doubles. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, doubles are yeah, good. Boggs was well, as good as anybody hitting doubles. And Boggs, yeah, well, Boggs, Barrett, Boggs. Like the Red Sox have always been pretty prodigious with the double sitters because of the wall. Right. So it's always, to me, it's always one of those markers where it's like I'm looking up. I will always, if you're a power hitter and you're just hitting home runs, I'm, I'm guaranteeing your numbers aren't going to look as nice as they could. Yeah. But yeah. it's the double. Doubles are where you, that's your bread and butter is line, drive, hitting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a power hitter without home run or without uh, doubles. I mean, that's, you know, Dave Kingman, Adam Dunn, essentially, which, I mean, they're valuable to a certain extent, but they are. You can't, you can't are, win with those guys. No, and uh, the Cubs found out with, with Dave Kingman and the Reds with Adam Dunn. 
similar to that. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to throw You can't have that type of hole in a championship lineup. I'm going to throw out um, my favorite Teddy stats, uh, and it's going to segue nicely into, I think, the last segment of, of our celebration of, of Ted here. Uh, and it has to do with uh, the 406 season in 1941. At uh, some point, and I forget who the writer was that, that published this, but uh, someone calculated what Ted Williams' average was based on the three true outcomes from that year. Just If you just took his home runs, walks, and strikeouts and eliminated every single ball and play he put in, Take, uh, give me a guess as to what you think his batting average would have been, just based on the three true outcomes. It's just home runs. Home runs, walks, and strikeouts. Well, he didn't strike out. Not at all. And he walked like a, It's got to be 180 combined walks and home runs. Yeah. And so, the walk, I mean, this is just batting average, so just don't even factor the walks in. 700? I mean, yeah, that's uh, not that much of an exaggeration. 578. Yeah. <laughs> Can you imagine any player today, if you just did the three true outcomes, like what the closest possibly would get to that insane number? No, and, and that's fine. no it's insane. Um, and, and 406, I mean, that that's really the, the crux, even in an era where batting average is understandably devalued. 406 is still the, the root core of my fascination with Ted Williams as a player. The, the reason why I kind of adopted him as my favorite, it goes way back from when I was a kid. Uh, my dad used to read me uh, a series of books. Do you remember Encyclopedia Brown? Does that ring a bell with you at all? <laughs> yeah. Yep. What do, you th- what do you think? I don't know who, who Bugs Meany is. <laughs> <laughs> Hell yes. Yes. That, that was my bedtime story as a kid. He would read me one mystery a night. We'd try to figure it out. And then I'd have to try to go to sleep. Uh, and I remember <laughs> the one that stuck in my mind was they had uh, three kids playing baseball. And each one picked a different favorite player. And I remember one was Babe Ruth, one was Ty Cobb, one was Ted Williams. And certainly, you know, every kid knows who Babe Ruth was. And this was also right around the time where Pete Rose set the hit record. So I knew who Ty Cobb was from that. I'd never heard of Ted Williams in my life. So I asked my dad, yeah, so who was that? And he said, oh, Ted Williams, yeah, that was the last guy to bat 400. And in my six- or seven-year-old brain, even at the time, I knew that you know 300 was a really great hitter in baseball. 400 seemed like somebody out of fiction to me. Like, like how could somebody, like, how could this exist? And I wanted to know more. And, and so, yeah, just over the years, like the first time my dad bought a baseball encyclopedia, I'd flip to Ted Williams' stats. And it was like a stats just a series of stat lines that jumped off the page and, and almost cried out, here is somebody extraordinary. Who is, here is yeah. somebody worth studying. And, and that every so- single year, yeah. those numbers are, they're so ridiculous. They are, they're almost mythical in their, in what they show you. Yeah. Like it's, he's an, it's unbelievable that he existed as a ball player, what he did. Yes. Um, it, it shouldn't have happened. Uh, and there's, there's a great essay by, uh, I think it's Stephen Jay Gould, who was an old uh, paleontologist with Harvard, I think, who made an argument that players used to be able to bat 400 because, like, especially back in the, like, 19-teens and 1920s, the difference between the best player in the game, the best players in the game and the worst players 
was so drastic and it was so wide that the best players were just so much better than the worst players. And that's what led to 400 averages. And he concluded that by the time in 1941, that distance had narrowed so substantially that it should not have been possible for Ted Williams to bat 400. And yet he did somehow, nonetheless, which which is just a really super stupidly educated way of, of arguing, again, best damn hitter who ever lived. Uh, have you ever taken a close look at, at kind of the progression of that 1941 season for Ted? Uh, how much have you kind of studied that? Well, I, I mean, I know enough that during DiMaggio's 56-game hitting streak, Teddy had a better batting average. Yep. <laughs> or 12 to 408. Absolutely, yeah. It's, and, you know, does anything else matter after that? I don't think so. <laughs> yeah, it, it's the thing about that season is because DiMaggio was such a curiosity. And, and 56, I mean, it's something that people follow along every day. So I get why it captivated people. But it should not have overshadowed Ted Williams' feet to the extent that it did. Because 406, the meaning of that is that you don't just have to spend 56 games getting hit every day. That is, every day of the season, you have to be at least good and great almost every single day as well. Almost, yeah. Right. You're always getting hits. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're, you're, you're at least always getting on base. Yeah. There, there's a wonderful tool in baseball reference that allows you to access game logs, game by game from players for every year. And looking at Ted's game logs from 1941, especially, I mean, th- those just sing. There, there are like long stretches, like uh, May 3rd to June 7th. I was just looking to prepare for this, for example. Uh, had a slash line 458, 556, 763, nine home runs over 30 games. An ops of 1.318, which was good. This was all good. He was hitting 436 on June 6th. I mean, this is all great. He slipped a bit after that. Uh, and then after that, 53-game stretch where he hit 442, 616, 859. 53, that, that, that's almost a third of a season doing that. And, and, and again, at a certain that's what you have to do to hit 406. And to me... When people look at that season, there's so much concentration, uh, understandably somewhat, on the last last doubleheader where he went six for eight to, to solidify the 406. Right. And it's a great story. But to me, the story of, of 1941 and Ted are those long stretches where he was transcendent over like month, month and a half long chunks of the season like that. And, and, and that is what makes 1941 and 406 so special to me. Yeah, to hit, I mean, did he play all 154 games? No, he was injured at the start of that year. Uh, he uh, hurt himself, hurt his ankle, sliding to a base in spring training. And actually, he would say later on that he thinks that's a good part of the reason why he hit 400 that year. Because in April, where the weather was cold and he never liked hitting in that condition anyway, he just pinch hit a few times. And so he was able to kind of start his season right when the weather started warming up in Boston. So he even like had a scientific approach to injuries and, and how they affected his hitting, which is great. He's a genius. Yeah. And then, of course, as I said, it, it culminates in that astonishing last day of the season where he was down to three nine 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 five going into the last doubleheader of the year in Philadelphia. Yeah, like I don't want the I don't want I don't want to hit four hundred with the nerds. Nope. I don't want the nerds. <laughs> oh, man, I hit four hundred. Yeah, and and there there's good points made by these biographers too that. Uh, people talk about, yeah, it rounds up to 400, but, and especially given how the press would treat him, everybody yeah, would know 8995 is not actually 400. So there's a exactly. lot 
going into that last two games of the season, that doubleheader. And to imagine the pressure. That's a, that's a, that's a man's day of work right yeah. there. Yeah. Just to imagine like what it's like to be in that ballpark and watching that happen, knowing the difference. Today is the difference between 400 or just another batting champion. And then the first time up, you see line drive into right field. So, you know, okay, good start. Next one is the home run sailing onto the street over Shide Park. And, you know, oh, he's got it. And then he just keeps hitting over and over and over. Six hits and eight at-bats. And the last hit and of the day. And he Yes, plays the game Yeah. He's that's... already got it. Ted, you've got it. Okay. Yeah. Yep, good. All right. Guess what? I'm going to get going to get more of it. And his very last hit of the season was a ball that he crushed to deep right field that clanked off of a loudspeaker in right field in Shide Park and fell into right field for a double. And Ted says Connie Mack had to replace the loudspeaker in the offseason because he put a hole in it. And that's Roy Hobbs <laughs> shit, right? That is how you end it, 406. But that's the thing, Ted, I mean, he was larger than life. He is a mythological figure. Yes. You know, of all the of all those old-timey baseball guys, he is... He is the truly the greatest, and and yet no stories about him, right? Mm-hmm. No, right. There is no Ted Williams movie. Yeah, I just don't. I don't think you can do it. I don't think he can be Hollywoodized. Right, and I think to to that point, the reason for that is because real life with him is just so much more interesting than any two hour movie could make it. Yeah, it, it, even even watching like a Ted Williams documentary. Uh, there was a great one last year on PBS, The American Masters, and they put a lot in, but it also felt like, oh, geez, slow down, guys. There's still a lot of great stuff that you're not putting in here. Uh, and that, I guess, is the legacy of Ted, is that yeah. uh, we, we've spent the better part of this hour talking about his greatness, and it still feels like we barely scratched the surface. And if that doesn't define greatest goddamn hitter who ever lived, I don't know what does. Yeah, I mean, just everything about him. There was such a full, a fullness and richness to his life, and, and you know, he he always had a a, a bad uh, a rapport with some reporters, but fuck them. Yeah, right? it was Ted was always the one to do the right thing mm-hmm. with at least outside of his household. Yeah. Um, and, and it bears out in his legacy. I mean, nobody was inviting, you know, Dave, the Colonel Egan, the famous Boston reporter to the 1999 all-star game for a victory. Right. Yeah. And that's the only right. I mean, of Teddy. The. Yeah, that got that 99. That's as that's as tearful as it gets. Yes, that was he when he he's he's seeking out McGuire and anything. Do you, do you, he says, do you, do you smell the smoke? Do you smell it? Yep. And McGuire, you can see the shock on McGuire's face. He's like, <laughs> I thought I was the only one. He's like, yeah. ah, that's yeah. the best. And, I mean, that's, you know, what the all-time great, only the all-time greats know that language. And that's that's yeah. one talking to another. And, uh, yeah, I think the, the thing about the 99 All-Star game and, and what made that so special for me I mean, they'd set it up. Uh, it was, you know, a tip-in in terms of, of, of course, this is going to be his moment, an incredible night. But it was that moment where all the greatest players in the present-day game took it upon themselves that 
this is going to be our opportunity to meet and to pay tribute to this guy. And you rarely see players act in concert like that and just gather around and just to be in his presence to the point where the public address announcer has to come on and say, will the, all the major league all-stars please clear the field so that we can continue. And literally nobody in the ballpark wanted to see them move because it, it was, well, it's, nobody it's, wanted so, to so, so many times professional ball players act like they're not fans of the game. Yeah. They're too cool. And they're too cool or they were too busy playing. I didn't watch baseball. I was playing baseball. Right. And there you had that moment where everyone was like, no, 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 no. We are all fans. <laughs> Here comes the greatest goddamn hitter that ever lived. Mm-hmm. And the joy that Nomar, you could see the joy on Nomar's face yeah. being one to chaperone Ted around. And just the joy of everyone's face as they came up and said their they're, they're peace to him. And you could see Ted, you know, and Ted was a mess then physically. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, he may have been like mostly blind. Yeah, he was. You uh, could barely see the plate when he threw out the first pitch. Uh, but yeah, but he, he could was, hear everybody. Yeah. And he was still like, he still knew how to talk baseball. Yeah. And, and it's like, that's, you know, that's the magic. Yeah. And that, I think, more than anything else, is, is the best legacy for him is that. He turned the two cool, uh, all the players who, who uh, you know, take such a, a removed two cool stance to baseball, he turned them into us. Is that yeah, yeah. the best way to sum it up? And yeah. Uh, yeah, on that note, Ron Krasnow, you have been the greatest goddamn guest who ever lived for this podcast. Uh, Ken Schultz, you're a mention of sweetie. You're a delight, my friend. Uh, anything you'd like to plug before we say goodnight? Uh, no. Uh, yeah, you know what? Donald Trump just got impeached. How about that? That is the best possible news, my friend.